Story 6 of Hugh Walpole's Selected Short Stories. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Story 6, The Adventure of Mrs. Farbman, 1925. It would be quite impossible at this later date to say with any accuracy as to whose idea it really was. I suspect, of course, that the credit is Chippett's, he being the romantic one of the three and the man of ideas. I, the professional writer, ought to have been the man of ideas, but I was suffering just at that time, I remember, from a surfeit of realism. Romance seemed to me something dead gone and long abandoned. Chippet, of course, maintained exactly the opposite of this. I can see him now, with his blue eyes, his fair hair, his trustful, pleading expression, urging upon us that the London of these up and down after the war years was the most romantic place in the world. Stevenson's London, he said, was nothing to it, and you remember how, when he brought out the new Arabian Nights, everyone was amazed that he could find so much color and excitement in this drab, dull, smoke-haunted, underground-driven town. I don't remember, I answered rather stiffly. I don't know what age you take me for, Bubbles, but I may remark that I was in my cradle when the new Arabian Nights was published. Well, anyway, said Chippet, never mind that. The point is that London has never been so romantic, so absurd, and so full of excitement as it is at this particular moment. It was, I believe, this very conversation that gave Chippet his idea. We were having lunch in Borden's rooms, and we were all rather alarmed. Alarmed because we were running very low in funds and saw no means of increasing them. Chippet had just retired from the diplomatic service. Borden was supposed to be a supporting journalist, but the sporting paper, which had been his principal ally, had just died from want of encouragement. I was a serious, realistic novelist. I need, therefore, say no more as to the reasons of my penury. Something must be done, and that soon. Chippet thought it would be very jolly if we could only all go into something together. We were great friends, understood one another thoroughly, and the gifts that we enjoyed were opposite enough to make us very useful allies. It was just then, I believe, that Chippet had his great idea. Why shouldn't we, uh, we all laughed. Oh, but that, we cried. Oh, not really, he answered. I don't see. Oh, uh, come now, we answered. They won't. I believe they will, he replied. The idea seemed certainly less fantastic when we examined it more closely. It was also a new idea. It had most certainly never been tried before. The first thing to do, said Chippet, now immensely excited, is to circularize the right people. Very careful we have to be. Let's draw up a list of names. In this matter of circularizing, we were certainly fortunate, because between us we covered a lot of ground. Chippet was aristocratic, being a cousin of the Bowminsters. Borden's uncle had one of the best stables in Great Britain, and had won the Grand National. Borden's younger brother was standoff half for Cambridge, and had every chance of gaining his international cap next season, now that Kershaw and Davies were confessing themselves too old for the game. And I, well, I was a friend of Halyard's, 
and had contributed on two occasions to his highbrow monthly i was a member of the garrick and beefsteak clubs and peter westcott who is now since the publication of the fiery tree generally recognized to be about the most promising novelist we have is quite a friend of mine i stood in fact for upper bohemia there were indeed very few sides of london life that the one or other of us did not touch our circular letter had every chance of making a true sensation this letter was our joint effort to this very day i pride myself on its admirable strategy and aplomb it ran as follows private and personal dear sir or madam we must apologize for disturbing you and for taking up your valuable time in this very unwarranted manner you may be assured that we would not do so were it not for the fact that we believe that we have a suggestion of real interest to make to you it is admittedly difficult in these times of progress and over-sophistication to discover some need of human beings hitherto unsatisfied from coconuts to boot trees everything can to-day when transit is so rapid and trade so often dishonest be supplied we flatter ourselves however that we have discovered one almost universal need that has hitherto most curiously escaped the attention of the benefactors of the human race sir or madam have you not in your immediate household or in your surrounding circle of friends and acquaintances a bore we admit that the question is abrupt and startling and that is why we have placed after it in the most modern and realistic manner those suspensive dots it is however meant to startle it is intended to shake you abruptly from the lethargy of habit and the indifference of custom we will not define to you more nearly what precisely is intended by the term bore we do not do so because in the first place time is precious and in these days paper expensive and for the second more excellent reason that what is a bore to one is not a bore to another we are in this case addressing you personally and individually we ask you to look round and considering your household decide whether there is not one person man woman or child whom you would like to see removed from your immediate vicinity perhaps there's no one in which case we offer you our most hearty congratulations and beg you to read no further in this letter which is not for you if on the other hand and human nature being what it is in the more likely case there is such a one we do beg you to apply to us and to see whether we cannot do something for you whether in improvement or modification or even in the total disappearance of your personal and individual bore we need not say that all transactions with our firm will be dealt with in the most private and confidential manner that in our manner of procedure we work by tact kindness and diplomacy and of course in no case whatever offer personal violence and that we are in every instance on the side of the law of our country will you not give us a trial all that is needed on your side is a visit to our office between the hours of ten and five all consultations are free of charge may not this suggestion be the very thing for which through many months you have wearily been searching 
Why not give us a trial? At least pay us a visit and see whether you like us. We are yours obediently, Boniface and Company. I need not say that we were none of us busy men, and that we had never before written a letter of this kind. That, I think, was all to the good. The letter had undoubtedly a freshness and originality that business letters for the most part lack. There was much discussion amongst us before the documents were finally dispatched. For one thing, it needed much argument and some sharp raising of voices before we finally decided on the name of our firm. Boniface was my suggestion, and I flatter myself that it was a good one. Borden, although a thoroughly fine fellow, was always a trouble in argument. He had all the Englishman's total lack of imagination, and was inclined to repeat any idea that he had over and over again, refusing obstinately to see any point of view but his own. We had, too, a very warm time over the question of the suspensive dots. Borden contended that that was a ridiculous sentence to insert in a business letter, that such a thing had never been in a business letter before, and that it would put any reasonable fellow right off us. I, on my side, maintained that it was precisely because it had never been done in a business letter before that I had inserted it, that what we wanted was the unusual and original, and to make people realize that we were different. They'll realize that soon enough, said Borden, grinning. Very painful are those first weeks after your business is started, when you sit in your office waiting, 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 and nobody comes. We had two rooms in Conduit Street for our offices, and very effective they were, with grey wallpapers and a dark red carpet, but a grey paper and a Japanese print are small consolations for an overdrawn banking account and two shabby suits of clothes. It was, I think, on the fourth or fifth day, when Chippet and I were sitting opposite one another in a very gloomy state of mind indeed, that the bell rang and the diminutive boy, by name Thomas, whom we had engaged at a high salary, introduced into our room a lady. Trained as I was in human psychology, I saw at once that she was foolish, helpless, and pretty. Here she was well over thirty, and there she was considerably under it, but she was dressed charmingly, and had an appealing, nervous smile that went, as I could see, straight to Chippet's uncritical heart. We begged her to sit down, both smiled at her, and then asked her if we could do anything for her. She hesitated a little, and then said, "'I received two days ago your letter, and I have come here to see whether you could possibly help me in my great trouble.' Chippet was so deeply excited at the actual occurrence of a real-life client that I could see he was ready to promise anything. So I, being older and more experienced, looking at her gravely and before Chippet could speak, made her a little speech. "'Madam,' I said, "'if you will let us know the nature of your trouble, we will do our best to serve you. Experience has taught us that it is wiser to make no promises until we know exactly what we are asked to perform. You can be sure of two things. First, that we will do our best for you, and secondly, that anything you say to us will be treated in the very strictest confidence.' 
I was myself considerably impressed by this speech. I was disappointed to observe that she looked, nevertheless, at Chippet, and it was to him that she made her appeal. Oh, I've never had, she said, a letter like yours before. There were certain things in it I didn't quite understand. I am perhaps taking a very wrong step in coming to you without my husband's knowledge. But what am I to do? I am desperate, really desperate. Two whole years of torture have brought me to this, or rather, I should say, to you. Chippet leant towards her, smiling. Perhaps, madam, he said, if you could explain to us a little. Oh, I will explain, she said, nervously rubbing her hands together. What I'm going to tell you I have never uttered to any human being before. And I do hope, gentlemen, that you will understand that I love my husband and am only acting for his benefit, and am indeed thinking only of him. I could see, of course, that this was untrue, but it apparently impressed Chippet very deeply. The lady had the face of a pretty little pig, a very tiny nose, plump cheeks, large blue eyes, and an indeterminate chin. My name, she said, is Mrs. Fleming, Mrs. Leestock Fleming. Perhaps you've heard of my husband? I saw that Chippet was about to say that he had, but as our policy was to be from the first an honest and open one, I interrupted him again and said, oh, I'm afraid we haven't heard of your husband. Would you kindly tell us anything you can that will help us to understand your position? She opened her large blue eyes with an air of pretty surprise and said, Why, I thought everybody had heard of my husband. He is one of the greatest living authorities on pond life and has written several books which have been very much praised. He gives lectures on pond life up and down the country, and it is really because of the lectures that my troubles began. Uh, because you mean, said Shippet, that you were not always able to accompany him on his lecture tours? Well, why, no, said Mrs. Fleming. Uh, we have two children, and my place, of course, is in my home. Devoted, though we are, we have spent a considerable amount of time away from one another, and that, I am sorry to say, has afforded an opportunity for someone else to gain a control over my husband that he deplores just as deeply as I do myself. Oh, please explain, said Chippet. If he deplores it, I should have thought it the easiest thing in the world. Oh, you don't know my husband, Mrs. Fleming broke in. He is one of the kindest men in the whole world, as she very well knows. She uttered the pronoun she with such vehemence that I jumped in my chair. Her eyes flashed, her little hands were clenched together, and I could not help wondering how it was that with such an energy of detestation ruling her breast, she had needed to come to us for any assistance. Tell us, said Chippa gently, who she is. Oh, how kind you are, said Mrs. Fleming, tears filling her eyes. I feel better already. I feel that I can say anything to you. Oh, you can, said Chippet. You can indeed. About two years ago, continued Mrs. Fleming, in Newcastle, after a lecture that my husband had given on newts and their home life, a lady came up and spoke to him and showed such evident interest in all that he had said that he could not but be pleased and flattered. 
He wrote to me about her, and I, too, was delighted that he should have found some real appreciation. I assure you, gentlemen, that I have not a spark of jealousy in my nature, and when he returned home and showed me her photograph, I saw, indeed, that I had no reason for jealousy. At first I was immensely pleased at this new friendship. My husband showed me all the letters from this lady, whose name was Mrs. Farbman, and they were letters entirely concerned with natural history and kindred subjects. The trouble really began just a year and a half ago, when Mrs. Farbman came to live in London. We were living then at Golders Green, and very soon she also came to live there. I don't disguise from you that the first time I met her I disliked her intensely, and I could not help feeling that even at that time my husband was beginning to find her rather tiresome. But he is so gentle a man, so kindly and considerate, that she soon exercised over him a most terrible control. To cut a long story short, for the last year was almost literally true that except for the night-time she has not been out of our house. He has been engaged during the last eight months on a very important work on tadpoles and their development, and unfortunately my occupation in my household affairs and the children, and Mrs. Farman's knowledge of shorthand, have given her an opportunity for being continually in his company. Is she in love with him? Jippet interrupted. Would you mind describing her to us? She is a tall woman, said Mrs. Fleming, rather like a man in woman's clothes. She must be well over forty, although she told us the other day that she had just celebrated her thirty-first birthday, and looked as though she expected us to give her a present, which I believe my husband would have done if I had not been there to stop it. She is a very dominating person, and to speak quite frankly, our whole house is in terror of her. She comes to almost all our meals, and of course we are not very wealthy, and she eats with a very good appetite. She has driven many of our best friends out of the house, because she talks a great deal, and generally on subjects that are not interesting to our friends. She professes to adore my husband, and thinks him the most marvelous of human beings, but she never allows him to have an opinion of his own, and he is now so terrified of her that last week he took to his bed for three days in order to escape her. But that was of no use, because she sat in the little dressing-room adjoining with the door open and shouted to him the whole of the morning. Tears filled Mrs. Fleming's eyes as she got deeper into her story. One tear even rolled down her cheek and I could see Chippet was very deeply touched. "'Well, Mrs. Fleming,' I said, "'you surely don't mean to tell us that you and your husband together are unable to get rid of this woman?' "'I do, indeed,' she answered, "'and not only I, but my sister, who lives with us, a cousin of my husband's who lives close to us, and two or three of our best friends have done all that we can, and have had no effect at all.' The trouble is, you see, that my husband has not himself courage to get rid of her. She has a temper, and at the same time has made him feel as though he hadn't now an opinion of his own. He thinks that if she left him, all his work would stop, and that he gets a great deal of his inspiration from her. That is, of course, quite untrue. 
He wrote and worked much better before he knew her. He is simply hypnotized, gentlemen, and it is this hypnotism which I have come to you to beg you to remove. Hypnotism, said Chippet. Do you mean literally? Does she really hypnotize him? No, of course I don't mean, she said, literally, that she hypnotizes him, although I am sure that she does a lot of queer things that I don't understand, but he is a man very easily impressed. He is so modest, and he always believes that everybody knows better than himself, and Mrs. Farbman is clever. However much one detests her, one can't deny that. In short, said Chippet, wearing a look of grave importance, what you want us to do is to remove Mrs. Farbman with the greatest kindness, but in such a way that she will never return again. Well, I don't mind about the kindness, said Mrs. Fleming, looking at us very innocently. I won't hide from you that a little suffering, physical or otherwise, would do her no sort of harm. But, of course, she hurriedly added, there must be no question of our involving ourselves with the law in any way. I saw very clearly that now that Mrs. Fleming had surmounted the initial difficulty of speaking to complete strangers on this rather piratical subject, she was enjoying herself immensely, and was looking forward to seeing Mrs. Farbman tortured with red pincers by several long-tailed devils in a miniature Hades. Of such are even the mildest and most gentle women when another woman has interfered with their personal liberty. Of course, she went on, I would hate to be cruel to anyone. I even step over a beetle if I see one on the floor. But I have suffered from Mrs. Farbman for a very long time now, and if you gentlemen can really succeed in helping her to new interests in life, I shall be grateful to you all my days. Inexperienced though we were in business, we were both of us already aware that when a client begins to talk fluently of gratitude, it means that there will be less fluency when the hour for the commercial side of the bargain arrives. So I said very gravely, uh, We will do our very best for you, Mrs. Fleming, but you must understand that we cannot absolutely pledge ourselves to success. Our terms are that you pay us one hundred pounds if our endeavors succeed, and fifty pounds, in any case, succeed or fail. We cannot, of course, pledge our word that Mrs. Farbman will never return to you again. We can only promise you that we will not claim success until she has been removed from you for three months. An occasional visit during those three months does not count against us. The way we would put it would be that, after watching the case for three months, we are all definitely of the opinion that Mrs. Farbman's attentions have been removed elsewhere, and we shall settle this question by asking Mrs. Farbman herself as to whether this is so. Are these terms satisfactory to you? One hundred pounds is a great deal of money, said Mrs. Fleming, her beautiful eyes filling with tears. I saw that Chippet would probably be touched if I left them alone. It is both fortunate and unfortunate to have in such a firm as ours a prominent official dangerously susceptible to feminine charm. So I said very sternly indeed, Those are our terms, Mrs. Fleming. Take them or leave them, as you please. But as I had foreseen, once the picture of Mrs. Farbman, unhappy and isolated, had 
penetrated mrs fleming's imagination she was caught and held i agree she said but please gentlemen be as quick as you can in helping us i feel that if i have to suffer as i have done during these last months i shall poison mrs farman with powdered glass or hyacinth or strangle her in her sleep what interrupted chippet greatly interested does she actually sleep in your house on several occasions said mrs fleming her little cheeks flushed with anger she has insisted on sleeping in our spare room in case she should have some ideas for my husband's book in the middle of the night i don't see said chippet why she shouldn't have those ideas in her own house as well as yours she says said mrs fleming that it's all a matter of atmosphere everything is atmosphere according to her there is for instance all the difference in the world between the thoughts that you have in a hot bath and in a cold one and what you feel like after breakfast and what you feel like before tea there's nothing very original about that said chippet in my opinion said mrs fleming there's nothing very original about mrs farman anywhere but you shall see for yourself two on the very next evening chippet and i had our first meal in the house of the flemings because i am a realistic novelist there is nothing i suppose in this modern world of ours that can possibly surprise me the Fleming's house, Mr. Fleming, the numerous little Flemings, and the great Mrs. Farbman herself, were all exactly as I had expected them. There is something to me strangely depressing about Golder's Green, and the Fleming's house would have been depressing anywhere. It was one of those houses in which the kitchen is in the middle of the drawing-room, and the dusty palms in large glazed pots stand cheek by jowl with onions frying in the pan and water sizzling in the copper for the children's weekly bath it was one of those houses in which every sound made by anybody within a five-mile radius is heard ten times intensified wherever you may happen to be it is also one of those houses in which the boards creak the windows rattle soot falls down the chimney the cat fights the dog the babies fight one another and the cook gives notice all in your immediate proximity i was very sorry indeed for mr fleming who was a very very long thin man with a forehead so high and a chin so receding that you felt that the only way to give his face any real help was to push it all down a little and then to hold it in position with iron hands for a year or two but he had nice mild eyes a straggling and desolate moustache and an anxious deprecating air that so often goes with clever absent-minded genius mrs farbman of course was exactly what i expected her to be one of those men in women's clothing as flat as a board with that contemptuous curl of the lip that belongs almost invariably to masculine women when they are in the presence of the inferior sex she took up a great deal of room in that small house the masculine jacket that she wore had its pockets full of papers she was always producing a fountain pen from the centre of her masculine bosom and taking innumerable little notes in little pocket-books writing them down with an air of finality as though it were the day of the last judgment 
and she was settling the destinies of all the poor human beings who were waiting in frightened huddled masses at her large uncomely feet it was quite natural that chippet and i disliked her at sight it was equally natural that she disliked and despised us mrs fleming introduced us as two young men who had been immensely attracted by what they knew of her husband's genius and had come thirsting for more information mr fleming was as touched as a child by my eager inquiries about newts and their habits and one or two remarks that chippet made about snails and their different geographical varieties brought tears of pleasure into his eyes but i realized that mrs farbman detected us at once for the humbugs that we were i realized also during that first meal which consisted very strangely of scrambled eggs cheesecakes and meringues both that mrs fleming was not a good housekeeper and that this business of ours into which we had entered with so light a heart was going to be no easy one halfway through dinner supper or breakfast whatever you like to call it there was a sharp little contest between chippet and mrs farbman mrs farbman had a terrible habit of leaning her bare and bony elbows on the table supporting a face which exactly resembled that of an intelligent and over-educated horse upon them and staring at the speaker of the moment with a penetrating glance of contemptuous scorn she was so staring at chippet who was trying to explain to mr fleming that when he was a small boy he had kept snails in a cigar box and harnessed them to matchboxes and made them run races with one another which he went on he would never have done had he only known as he knew now what interesting creatures they were and how sensitive in their feelings humbug said mrs farbman suddenly i beg your pardon said chippet nervously what you're saying about snails said mrs farbman is humbug you never cared in the least about snails and you don't care about them now excuse me said chippet flushing angrily allow me to have my own opinions about the things i care for and the things i don't oh you can have your opinion said mrs farbman but i wasn't born yesterday you know which indeed was the truest thing she ever said i saw at once that these were the worst possible tactics for us to adopt i tried to kick chippet under the table but most unfortunately kicked mrs farbman instead she turned her attention to me and i did my best to be as charming as i knew how but really the woman was intolerable she assumed complete command of the house and when one of the children was heard crying in the next room and mrs fleming rose to go to her mrs farbman said oh sit down flora sit down don't make a fool of yourself when a very untidy maidservant brought in the meringues mrs farbman glaring at her said what was that noise that i heard in the kitchen just now oh, nothing said the maid tossing her head it was the loudest nothing i've ever heard said mrs farbman that china shall be deducted from your wages she ruled in fact the house with a rod of iron now this is the really interesting feature of this our first adventure you will certainly say that mrs farbman as i have described her to you is a good deal of a caricature and to that i would reply that more people are caricatures than you probably know 
and that many people are caricatures at first sight and cease to be so when we know them a little better now this i repeat is the curious and interesting thing that before the end of our meal i was beginning to be quite fond of mrs farman i cannot explain this except by saying that as i am a modern novelist the most extravagant types have an interest for me but apart from this professional tenderness there was something about mrs farman that was lonely touching and pathetic with that swift perception of human nature that is one of the finest gifts i possess i saw that she was a lonely unloved woman whose rudeness and masculinity were largely a covering for a longing for affection and some sort of commendation of her talents and erudition mr fleming was in all probability the only human being in all her life who had appreciated her brain and industry and it was for that appreciation that she clung to him more than for anything else after dinner we sat in the small stuffy sitting-room that smelt of mixed biscuits and stale eau de cologne and mrs farman held forth at interminable length on the connection between the psychoanalysis and the suffragette movement she had a great deal to say and she said it vigorously and it's all at once that she was longing for our appreciation as eager for it indeed as a small girl who is reciting for the first time her school piece before a crowd of indifferent relations that was a picture that i shall never forget the close ill-smelling room overcrowded with marine pictures china ornaments bamboo bookcases albums of family photographs ferns and human beings with mr fleming's long body stretching right across the floor his eyes closed and sunk deep into his forehead his bony hands clasped together on his lap mrs fleming angry watching mrs farman with indignant eyes chippet distressed already by the certainty that we were going to fail in this our very first case and mrs farman seated like a man leaning forward her elbows on her knees staring into space her voice rolling on and on and words like freud jung inhibition mrs pankhurst and bolshevism spattering the floor with such vigor and energy that it seemed as though they must leave permanent marks on the faded carpet yes i liked her better and better as the evening proceeded i remember once at the zoo seeing a large monkey in the corner of its cage chattering making fantastic gestures scratching itself in impossible places doing everything it could to attract the attention of a group of bored and superior monkeys who were half asleep in another corner and in the eyes of that large monkey there was a look of the most desperate loneliness i have ever witnessed in animal or man such loneliness was there in the eyes of mrs farman more touching still was it that she herself was unaware of this and would have been certainly most indignant had you told her of it as she talked i saw in her all those long desolate years that eagerness for wisdom and longing for the possession of some human being who would care for her and her alone that consciousness that must have come to her in spite of herself of her ugliness and oddness that desperate sense that even this man fleming whom she had succeeded in attaching for a brief period might at any moment slip from her 
all these things i saw and you may believe me or no as you please but before that first evening was over i felt as i considered the project that had brought chippet and myself to that house something very little short of a murderer three a murderer yes that's all very well but we had our business to consider and at the end of the first fortnight we were bound to confess that we were dangerously near to defeat other things were happening at this time other clients were coming to us of whom i may speak on another occasion and borden was conducting one of these with every prospect of success but this affair of the flemings was for chippet and me our ewe lamb our first-born our precious pet chippet was nearly in tears whenever he thought of it mrs fleming was becoming frankly impatient and i could see that if we failed there would be great trouble in extracting from her the promised fifty pounds she had begun by thinking us perfectly delightful there was every prospect of her ending by thinking us contemptible fools we spent a great deal of our time under the fleming roof these rooms had already overflowed before our arrival and it was not in very truth vastly diverting to spend hours of the day and the best part of many an evening in a small stuffy villa in golders green stepping so to speak from infant to infant and eating meals of so horrible and unnatural a kind that chippet's hitherto admirable digestion was in danger of being permanently ruined and i myself turned quite green at the thought of scrambled eggs a dish in which i had hitherto delighted but the main trouble was this increasing affection of mine for mrs farbman it baffled chippet completely at first he supposed that i was being diplomatic and seeking to gain an influence over her then when he discovered that i was winning no influence at all and that i really seemed to like to be in her society and when he caught me on one occasion looking into her dim and grey-green eyes as i might have looked at the face of my favourite dog he was puzzled and finally indignant good heavens seymour he said you don't mean to tell me that you like the woman i do like her but she hates you she hates you even worse than she hates me she's a terrible woman and his voice rose into a shrill scream as he often did when he was excited i don't know that she hates me i answered curiously hurt at his accusation i think she's rather beginning to like me oh no she isn't said chippet i overheard her saying last night to mrs fleming that she would be very glad to know how much longer these two imbecile friends of hers were coming to the house and mrs fleming said that she thought that she would like to have a clever novelist to talk to and i won't tell you continued chippet smiling maliciously what exactly it was that mrs farbman then said about you as a novelist oh don't mind me i said hurriedly pretending not to care oh no i don't said chippet only i will tell you this that time's passing and if you're going to waste these precious hours by attempting to win mrs farbman's bony heart you are not playing the game and we may as well dissolve partnership i could not deny that chippet was right 
Business was business, and however attractive I found Mrs. Farbman, something must be done to further our plans. And yet, how strange, and even in an obscure way, romantic, those hours in her company were. I have never known so truly stupid a woman as Mrs. Farbman was, nor have I ever known any woman capable of such a flood of apparently clever conversation that was finally quite meaningless. It was with this meaningless flood that she surrounded and overwhelmed poor Mr. Fleming. He may have been once, in the days before the arrival of Mrs. Farbman, aware of the ultimate purpose and purport of his book, but she had by now so fluently confused him, she so persistently led him off the straight track the moment that she perceived him to be upon it, she flung at his enormous, but I cannot help thinking, rather empty forehead, such incessant little pellets of disconnected information that the poor man just crumpled up and moved in a kind of stupor from phrase to phrase, seeing his newts, his tadpoles, his snails, and whatever, all scuttling away from him. I am quite aware that newts and tadpoles cannot scuttle, into a vast misty distance whence he desperately began to be aware he would never recover them. It was for this reason, I think, more than any other, that he would really have given his immortal soul to be rid of Mrs. Farbman, but you had only to look at him, to listen to his mild, amiable voice, to watch the timid way in which he scratched his fast, thinning hair, to be aware that he would never of himself be able to escape this bondage. At the end of the third week, the crisis arrived. We came, Chippet and I, one day to tea, and found Mrs. Fleming alone. We could see plainly enough that she was in the very worst of tempers. Well, she asked us, her blue eyes flashing, her little snub nose trembling with indignation, do you mind telling me how long this farce is to continue? I hope you will forgive me if I say exactly what I think. That, interrupted Chippet, smiling nervously, is what we want to hear. I know that so far we have not been a great success, but... Thank you, broke in Mrs. Fleming. I am grateful to you for admitting that much. No, you have not been a great success, and I hope your feelings won't be hurt if I tell you that I am not at all sure that you are not a pair of humbugs against whom one might very reasonably bring an action. Here we have been three weeks, and Mrs. Farbman is more securely in the house than ever before. You have done nothing, she cried, to persuade her to leave us. You have had innumerable meals in my house, and although I am not one to grudge my friends any hospitality we can afford, yet my husband and I are not wealthy, or we would not be living in Golders Green. You have done nothing, nothing, nothing! She then burst into tears. Give us another week, Mrs. Fleming, said I, and if at the end of that time we are still unsuccessful, we will call the case off, and we will not ask you to pay us a penny." This mollified her somewhat. You must consider, Mrs. Fleming, continued Shippet eagerly, that we have suggested a number of plans that you have refused to consider, such as Seymour here traveling with Mrs. Farbman in an aeroplane to Paris and leaving her there, or hiring a motor car and going with Mrs. Farbman to the Lake District, 
and losing her on one of the mountains and there have been many other schemes of that kind which you have absolutely forbidden us to consider there she cried in the middle of her tears doesn't that show you how incompetent you are haven't you seen already enough of mrs farbman to know that no mountains and no paris nor anything else would prevent her from returning she will follow us wherever we go i see myself within another six months a murderess in the dock at the old bailey my husband dying of a broken heart my children thrown upon the streets a very trying scene ensued mrs fleming's tears were as bad as mrs farbman's psychoanalysis and quite frankly of the two women i infinitely preferred mrs farbman that night chippet and i were in despair we suspected that we had after all no real talent for this particular business and it intensely chagrined us both that our partner borden whom we had always rather despised as an over-muscled and brainless sportsman should be bringing his first case that remarkable one of the twickenham footballer to a really successful issue while we were failing upon what little chances do the wheels of life turn had it not been for a curried egg i might at this moment be begging my bread in the streets of london chippet might never have become sir gordon chippet k b e our lives in fact might have ended in dismal and untimely failure on the following evening we were once more dining at the flemings it was a melancholy meal even mrs farbman was rather silent my heart was like lead sardines had been our first course those especially greasy and enormous sardines that are like miniature whales with huge spine bones warranted to defeat the strongest teeth our second course was a dish of curried eggs better cooked i must honestly confess than anything that we had yet eaten under the fleming roof i was sitting opposite mrs farbman the dish went its round went round a second time it was enough for me to have caught one glance one gesture one spark of a grey-green eye that night as we found our places in the hampstead tube i clutched chippet by the arm and murmured excitedly in his ear i believe we are saved i believe i found a way out at last what do you mean he replied so loudly that a row of evening standards descended and a succession of astonished faces stared in our direction wait i answered i must think this out to-night but i believe the key is discovered four on the following afternoon i went to the fleming's house and found mrs farbman there alone i came in without her hearing me and caught her seated low down in a crazy rocking-chair staring in front of her the inevitable notebook on her lap and in her eyes that same monkey-like absorption of loneliness that i had noticed before i stood there for a moment watching her i knew so well what she wanted and yet i was taking away from her the closest semblance to that need that she had ever found in all this as you will have by now perceived the flemings themselves were very shadowy creatures to me i have a scorn of human beings who are unable themselves to remove burdens for which they themselves are responsible and that scorn was going to make my work difficult for me in many ways 
what would happen i could not but ask myself if it was in these cases to be always the bore who roused my sympathy instead of the sufferers from the bore well if that were so i should learn something more about my fellow beings than i had known before and that same learning is i imagine the chief aid to knowing something more about myself which in its own turn is the first purpose of life well to get on with my story the first words that sprang from my lips and they literally did spring to my own intense surprise were oh mrs farbman i wish you liked me better i do like you so much this remark when she had supposed that there was no one in the room beside herself naturally made her jump she turned round to me notebook slipping on to the floor then when she saw who it was she gave a kind of grunt of dissatisfaction and turned her back on me again then she said speaking as it were to no one in particular i don't like many people in this world and young men like yourself and your friend are abhorrent to me why i asked coming forward you are useless conceited and ignorant finishing her words with a snap as though they were final you can't expect me to agree with that i answered chippet and i have a very decent opinion of ourselves what are you doing here she asked suddenly turning round and looking at me what are you here for at all you don't like mrs fleming you laugh at her husband and yet you come here every day why maybe to see you mrs farman stuff she replied you are neither of you intelligent enough to interest me and unless i am interested i am not attractive i'm quite aware of that besides it's been perfectly obvious that you have both disliked me intensely from the very beginning are you trying for some purpose of your own to get me out of this house suppose i am i answered is there any chance of my succeeding yes she replied quickly if you can offer me anything better if you want to know the truth i have been for many months now so bored here that i could scream i'd leave mr fleming tomorrow if i could fill my life some other way but i simply can't face the loneliness and emptiness that would come after all my occupation here of course i've been cheating myself i've been pretending to myself that mr fleming's work is important which it isn't in the least and i've liked the sense of authority that i found here i like ordering about and i know quite well that even mr fleming will be delighted to see the last of me and mrs fleming of course will light such a bonfire of ecstasy when i'm gone that it will illumine the whole of golders green for miles around but where am i to go what am i to do i've been calling myself for years a modern woman and there's another side you know to the modern woman question that many people don't consider we go in for men's work men's lives men's way of thought and then we have to cling on like drowning men to a raft clinging on to a boat that's overcrowded already the occupants of which are always digging at us with boat hooks to push us back into the sea again and shouting with joy when we drop off and drown there's room for a few of us but not for many besides as you have probably already observed i am not really clever enough i have got a muddled feminine brain i cover my ignorance of facts with lots of talk and hope the people will be taken in 
I can't expect at my time of life, and with my appearance, to take any one in as thoroughly as I've taken Mr. Fleming, and even he isn't taken in any longer, as you see. If I lose my hold on this little boat, I drown altogether. At my time of life, I must think no longer of love and marriage. Well, then, where am I? I'll tell you where you are, I answered. You're going to dine with me tonight at the Van Blanc in Soho. At the word dine, she sat up and looked at me eagerly. The food here is awful, isn't it? Yes, I answered slowly, except for the curried eggs last night. But there are better things than curried eggs at the Van Blanc. There is, for instance, sole meunier that is quite excellent, and they are better at white bait than any one in London. Do you have nothing but fish? she asked. Oh, yes, I replied. Come and see. We looked at one another steadily for quite a long time. You're a clever young man, she said. You're observant. You will get on. I will dine with you tonight. The next scene of this voracious history was played out in the little, white, low-ceilinged upstairs room of the Vin Blanc. A new actor was added to an already competent company. This was little Monsieur Pierre Dormal, no relation, by the way, to the author of The Vie des Mortes, the proprietor of the Vin Blanc. I have known Monsieur Duhamel through a considerable number of years. He was a cheery little soul, round and chubby, wearing always an immaculate white apron, a little black tufted beard on his chin. He had come from Paris ten years ago, had made his little Soho restaurant pay, but had never extended it, as he might have done, to something of a large and extravagant order that would have given him very quickly enough money on which to retire for the remainder of his days. He did not wish to retire. He made enough for his living. He was unmarried and preferred, as he explained to me, to enjoy his leisure hours. Now, he had always burning in his soul a curious passion, and that was to marry a truly intellectual woman. He was an immense admirer of the other sex, but always from the standpoint of brain rather than of body. Physical beauty meant nothing to him, or so little as not to matter, but a clever woman, or even a stupid woman who seemed to him clever, excited him to a frenzy of admiration and desire. What he liked best was to have as a habitual customer some member of the opposite sex, while she discussed his sole menier and his Chateaubriand steak with real human appreciation, and also able to give him a little philosophy, a few words about the advancement of women, and a hint or two as to Bergson. The unfortunate thing was, as he had so often confided to me, that intellectual women were so seldom interested in cooking, and after all, he explained to me, I have nothing to offer such a woman except a good meal, a kind heart, and an attentive manner. On one occasion, I remember, I had brought into his restaurant the lady principal of a famous women's college. He had given her such a meal as I have seldom enjoyed anywhere. It was pathetic to see the way in which he hovered round her table, hoping that everything was perfectly delightful, and then venturing a word on Bergson's book, on laughter, being crushed by her quite natural gasp of astonishment and air of nervousness, and look at me for reassurance. What a droll little man, she whispered to me. 
that was the fashion alas in which all learned women considered monsieur du hamel i will confess to you that on this evening i was immensely excited what would come of my plan it might so easily fail if it failed my last card was played it did not fail monsieur du hamel's first glance at mrs farbman told him that here was an intellectual woman indeed mrs farbman's first glance at the sole meilleur told her that this was a restaurant sans peur et sans reproche i would not like to say that she was a greedy woman i have never been able to understand why a really aesthetic appreciation of food should be held to count against a man i fancy that good food beautifully cooked was mrs farbman's approach to the spirit of beauty and it was an approach that had been throughout her hard and rather dreary life consistently denied to her you could see from the way in which she ate her soul that she was not considering so much the perfection of the soul itself but that it placed her in relation to all the beautiful things in life from which mrs fleming's scrambled eggs had so long isolated her as for monsieur du hamel before the soul was finished his face beaming with smiles he had inquired as to whether mrs farbman had yet mastered einstein's relativity of course mrs farbman had not mastered it being in that at least entirely at one with all her fellow human beings but she had a great deal to say about it a flood of words poured from her words to myself quite meaningless and to herself nearly so but sentences long and involved containing capital letters and quite a number of proper names monsieur du hamel's ecstasy was a thing to envy but i see madam he cried that what you say is a profound truth you have enlightened my mind i cannot thank you sufficiently if you knew what it was for one who is so persistently denied food for his mind by his inevitable pursuit of food for the body to meet someone as wise and brilliant as yourself i was soon forgotten by both of them and when at last i pleaded an engagement monsieur du hamel suggested to mrs farbman that she should drink a cup of coffee in his own little room just above the room where we were sitting i left them together what more need i say simply this that long before the three months were out mrs fleming had delivered to us the cheque for one hundred pounds that the fleming household was a paradise such as i never could have imagined and mr fleming in spite of or shall i say because of the departure of mrs farbman progressed with his book at double the speed of the earlier days and that finally i was asked on one beautiful summer day to a wedding breakfast in the private room of the vin blanc a breakfast that excelled both in the superb excellence of its cooking and in the vigor of intellectual conversation any meal that i had ever attended End of story six